0: Sound beautiful, church. Well done. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, now and fill this place with your presence. Take these very challenging words, uh, Lord, words that could almost be words of condemnation if they were not touched by your grace, and fill them with the sweetness of the gospel and then apply them to our lives, Lord, so that we might live out the truth of the kingdom when we leave this place. Lord, grant me utterance as the preacher of your word. Grant me clarity of speech and clarity of precept. Lord, grant us all as we gather here today the ability to rightly hear and receive the truth of the scriptures. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I saw I saw Baby Sterling this morning. It's her first Sunday in church. How about that? That's pretty amazing. Welcome, welcome. Well, we all know that there are forces in our lives that have the power to blind us. Usually, these forces of spiritual blindness are centered on idols, on the false gods that we bring into our lives. And in the Gospels, Jesus warns us that there is a particularly powerful and seductive force that is able to blind our hearts in how we see God and how we see others and how we perceive ourselves. And Jesus calls this force mammon, and he brings it up in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, right before the passage that we heard read this morning. And so let me read Luke 16, 13. Jesus said, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or God and mammon. So what we worship, what we serve, what we follow as of ultimate importance becomes the foundation, the, it, it becomes the lens of, through which we perceive all of reality. So the the most important thing in my life, the thing that I truly treasure, is going to become the lens through which I see all of life, all of reality. And if our ultimate loyalty, our ultimate treasure, is our relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then that's going to shape the entire scope of our lives. But if, on the other hand, it is material success, security and comfort entertainment and pleasure seeking, then this too will become the defining principle of how we view the world and the people in the world. And that's the backdrop for the parable that we heard from Jesus's own lips here in Luke's gospel, Luke 16, or actually we heard it from Jesus's own lips too, but uh, it was very convenient. Thank you. But that is the that is the backdrop for the parable we just heard about the rich man. Sometimes the rich man in classical literature gets referred to as dives or dives, D-I-V-E-S. The rich man and Lazarus. And so this morning, I want us to there's so much content here, we really need to dig in and unpack the scripture and see what Jesus is really teaching us here. So to begin with, we need to see that Jesus what Jesus is not saying in this passage what Jesus is not saying in this passage. He is not saying that having clothes or a roof over your head or three square meals a day guarantees you lakefront property on the lake of fire. That is not what he is saying. And likewise, he is not saying that poverty is the key to heaven. If that were the case, then not only are most of us here today in really big trouble, but the rest of the, te- of the New Testament just doesn't make sense. It would be inconsistent. So we're going to have to look a little more deeply. We're going to have to look for a little more nuance that, than that in this parable. And the way that we do this, the way that we can do that is to take a closer look at the characters, the people that Jesus presents in these parables. So Luke tells us that there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Now, in just that one sentence, Jesus, with an economy of words, paints an incredibly rich picture for his ancient Near Eastern listeners. And we have a clear insight to to this man's character just by that one sentence that Jesus has offered. First of all, the rich man is a practitioner of conspicuous consumption. He dresses in the most expensive clothing possible. In the ancient world... Uh, The purple dye for clothing was extremely difficult to produce. Some of you have watched the History Channel. You know all about this. And it was usually reserved only for royalty or for those who were receiving royal favors. But more than that, those listening to this parable would recognize that when Jesus speaks of fine fine linen, that's actually a reference to this man's underwear. That's right, he didn't just have lavish outerwear, even his drawers were highfalutin'. And the only reason to dress this way is to advertise your wealth. You want people to know that you have made it in the world and that this is your means of promoting the fact that you are a success. I look at me, these are the qualities of a successful person. I am a successful man. Now, on top of his lavish wardrobe, he also, Jesus says, feasts sumptuously every day. Now, you can't have a feast without guests. And so every day, a stream of A-list guests come through his gate, the gate of his estate, into his palatial residence. And no doubt, those guests are appropriately wowed by the buffet and the air of opulence. And they probably say, man, you... uh, Divies, this is better than the embassy suites. I mean, this is better than having your breakfast prepared to order at embassy suites. I love embassy suites, by the way. That's <laughs> my favorite place. You have really made it in life. And there's one more detail here. Jesus says that he feasted like this every day. This means that he was not observing or letting his servants, his staff, observe the, sta- the Sabbath day. His wealth in his life, had trumped the Torah, the law's command, to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. And we know that faithfulness to the Torah... So listen, we know that this is actually a point that Jesus is making because faithfulness to the Torah is on Jesus' mind and on his listeners' minds because right before this parable in Luke chapter 16, verses 14, 15, and all the way through 17, Jesus has this to say. Listen, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now listen, he says this, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law, one dot of the Torah to become void. So Jesus' listeners are already tuned in to think about observing Torah when they hear this parable. And there is no doubt that they picked up on the fact that the rich man did not remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So what is all all of this? This picture, this character uh, sketch that we've received adds up to something. Well, the rich man flaunts his wealth. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. He obviously ignores God's command in the law and prophets to care for and protect the poor. And and the things that he exalts are what Jesus calls an abomination in the sight of God. Now, listen, this is very important. The only time in all four Gospels that Jesus refers to any human activity as an abomination to God is here in this parable. And it is in the context of what is considered to be success among men. And that's... Astonishing. Literally right outside the rich man's gate, we encounter the second character in this story. And at his gate, Jesus said, was laid a poor man man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, again, with just a few words, Jesus paints a rich picture. First of all, we know the poor man's name. His name is Lazarus. And it's interesting that in, there, is no other, there is no other parable in all of the New Testament. Jesus tells no other parable in which a character is given a name. Nowhere, nowhere else in any of Jesus' parables is a character named. So there must be a reason for this. And the name itself reveals the reason for why Jesus Jesus includes it. that The Hebrew word that we translate as Lazarus, or gets taken up into Greek and then translated into English as Lazarus, is actually Elazar. Elazar. And it literally means the one God helps. So in Luke's gospel, Luke is specific. He begins this in the Magnificat, you know, uh, with Mary, you have considered the lowly estate of your handmaid." In Luke's gospel, the poor are lifted up as examples of those who have great faith due to the fact that their only resource is God. Since he is a beggar, by definition, he has no family to care for. him. If he had a family, he wouldn't be sitting on the side of the road as a beggar. Lazarus is the one whom God helps because ultimately God is his only help in this world. And we know from the text that Lazarus can't even get around on his own, that he's not mobile because he has to be laid by his friends in the community outside the gate of the rich man. He has to be placed there. They put Lazarus there because they imagine that the rich man is going to have mercy and have pity on Lazarus. And then the ESV text offers a very weak translation where it says that Lazarus desired to be fed with, the, with what fell from the rich man's table. Desired to be fed just doesn't capture the power in that statement. Here's what it really says. He was longing to be filled from the table scraps. He was longing just to eat the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. And even in the context and the, the wording there actually indicates that it's a longing that will not be and cannot be fulfilled. And then Jesus adds this phrase. And some of us went, ooh, when he said it. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, I think most of us realize that dogs have always been considered unclean animals uh, certainly by uh, ancient Middle Eastern Jews and then later by uh, other people living in the Middle East and in the, in the uh, Muslim community in particular. They're considered to be unclean animals. They were an occasion, they, and occasionally still are maybe used as guard dogs but almost never as a family pet. We usually read the text, therefore, as if the dogs are adding insult to injury. It's like saying, not only was Lazarus sick and hungry but to make matters worse, the dogs came and licked his wounds. But that is not what's really going on here in this passage. And that's not the way Jesus' first listeners and Middle Eastern listeners would have heard this text. The early, some of you know that I love to talk about uh, an ancient Middle Eastern Christian commentator. His name is, was Ibn al Tayyib. And he was a monk, he was a, a Bible scholar and a Bible commentary, commentator and a, a physician. He lived in the 11th century A.D., and he says this about the dogs in this story. Listen to what Ibn Al-Tayyib says. I understand that the licking of Lazarus' sores gave him relief and eased his pain. This reminds us that the silent, unspeaking animals felt compassion for him, and they helped him and cared for him more than humans. He was naked, without medical attention other than what he received from the dogs. So now you're thinking, all right, you've given us a lot of background. What is this all? What's the point of all this? Well, here it is. Listen, Jesus sets up this parable to say that the rich man had it in his power to relieve Lazarus's suffering and to fill his belly. He literally had to step over him every day coming in and out of his house. We know that by the text that he knows Lazarus's name. Why do we know that? We know it because in, later in the passage, when the, lift, when the rich man lifts up his eyes and in hell, is in hell, he calls out the name, you know, Abraham, send Lazarus. So he knows Lazarus' name. So he certainly noticed him lying there. But he did not lift a finger to help this man. He was completely blind to Lazarus' need and his own responsibility to help. So he's blind to Lazarus' need and his responsibility to help. Now, this is where, listen, this is where the dogs come into the story. Jesus is saying that by licking Lazarus' wounds, the dogs offer more comfort and care to the beggar than does the rich man. In other words, the rich man is worse than an unclean dog. Jesus is saying, by comparison, the rich man is worse than a dog. You are lower than a low-down street dog. The rich man, this son of Abraham, knows the prophets. He knows what is taught. He has told you, O man, what is good. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And he doesn't do any of that. And yet the, rich, the things that the rich man exalts, the things that the rich man sees as success, the things that really matter to him, the things of men, as Jesus says are an abomination, unclean, detestable, odious to God. But there is a point, finally, in this story where the rich man and Lazarus have a moment of absolute equality. They are completely at the same level in one moment. They both die and end and death. They are equal, equal in this parable and in their lives for the very first time. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Lazarus and the rich man find that their roles are reversed. They're inverted after death. The poor man receives an angel escort. I guess with angel sirens and angel flashing lights. A big motorcade of angels to the great feast in paradise where he reclines in the place of honor right beside another rich man. But a rich man who did not allow his possessions to claim his devotion and that is Father Abraham. The rich man is shocked to wake up in hell. (laughs) Tormented. Tormented. He's not used to this kind of treatment. Don't you know who I am? Don't ever say that, by the way. (laughs) Who says that? Do do you know who I am? Actually, nobody knows your name in this story. We only know Lazarus' name. Don't you know who I I am? There must be some mistake. And then what happens in, in, in the parable next is the real punchline of this story. You would think, you would think, That realizing his situation and seeing Lazarus feasting in the seat of honor, he would come to his senses and the rich man would blurt out an abject apology that would sound something like this. Oh no, what have I done, Lazarus, all of your life I ignored you. I never even thought of you as a fellow human being. Now I realize that I've sinned against you and I've sinned against God. Please forgive me for not caring for you. I see now I deserve the punishment I have uh, received because my entire life was lived for self-indulgence and arrogant display of my wealth. I was a fool. That's what you'd think. But that is not what happens. No, instead, the first thing he does is reminds Abraham that he is his descendant father Abraham That's right I'm related to you we're kin folks You owe me And then he starts to dictate what he wants Lazarus to do for him in hell As the Brits say what cheek What cheek What nerve He's frying in hell because he has ignored God's claim on his life through the clear revelation of the Torah and the prophets on how he was to love his neighbor. And instead of realizing this, he wants to perpetuate the same dehumanizing pattern that he developed in his life. He only sees Lazarus as someone who is fit to fetch and carry for him. Now that Lazarus is finally on his feet, you know, he had to be laid at his, uh, at his doorstep. He, you know, he couldn't even move on his own, but man, I'm glad to see you're feeling better, Lazarus. Abraham, would you send him to fetch some water for me? And when that doesn't work out, he asked Abraham to send Lazarus as a messenger boy. Hey, will you send Matt, uh, uh, Lazarus to take a message to my brothers to warn them about the hell that is awaiting them? Again, the the rich man is just totally oblivious to the fact that it was his narcissistic, self-obsessed disregard for Lazarus that landed him in hell in the first place. He is completely unrepentant. In other words, the trajectory that he began in his life of neglecting and and overlooking and not seeing Lazarus continues in, in hell. Listen to me. The older, uh, this is, I can say this now with some authority. The older you get, the more like yourself you become. The older you get, the more like yourself you become. Be careful, young people. (laughs) What trajectory are you on? The things that you begin as patterns now will amplify And become patterns that you can't break out of. And so that even even when he should know better, he still is thinking exactly the same way that ended him in the plight that he finds himself in now. The rich man is in hell for precisely the same kind of reason that he's telling, he wants Abraham to tell Lazarus what to do for him. He doesn't see Lazarus as a person. He only sees him as a means to his own relief. Abraham tells the rich man that the revelation given in the law and the prophets are sufficient to warn anyone. We don't need to send Lazarus to run an errand for you because the the word of God in the Torah and the prophets is sufficient to warn anyone. What's more, if they harden their hearts against God's written word, they will even reject the witness of one raised from the dead. And, in fact, we know that in John's gospel, the the last gospel in the four gospels, John's gospel, John chapter 11, Jesus goes, you know, his friend, what happens to be named Lazarus, Lazarus dies, and Mary and Martha send word to Jesus, the friend that you love is dead. Jesus comes down to uh, Bethany, I think it's Bethany, and he goes out to raise Lazarus from the dead. And, wow, Lazarus just really came back to life. You know, the the dead man came out clothed in uh in his bandages walking and jesus said unbind him and let him go he the dead man was alive and of course immediately the scribes and pharisees said well we just need to repent and listen to this jesus guy no they did not they went out and conspired how to kill lazarus and jesus they just saw somebody raised from the dead and yet their hearts were not changed in arguing for a special visitation from the dead, the rich man is implying that it's not really my fault that I'm in hell. He's saying this, and oh my goodness, have I heard these things before. If only we had had more information. If there was just a little more proof. It, oh, if there was just more information. I think it was Bertrand Russell who said, what, what are you going to say to God if you find Bertrand Russell, mathematician, philosopher, Smart guy, early 20th century, um, and a a very vocal atheist. And uh, Bertrand, they said, well, what are you going to say to God if you find out that he's real? He said, I will have to say you needed to give me more information. He's not the first one who said that. If I only had more information, it's not fair. I should not have ended up here. So what's the application to all this? Well, the entire story of the rich man is a sorry saga of spiritual blindness. He is blind to the fact that he did not deserve the good things in his life. Those were all gifts of grace. He was blind to the suffering of Lazarus. He was blind to the fact that his own flaunting of wealth in front of this man, Lazarus, only added to the pain that he quietly bore at his gate. He is blind to the dignity and humanity of Lazarus as a fellow Jew and a person created in God's image. He was blind to God's claim over his own life. And even the torment of hell isn't enough to open the eyes of the rich man. And the trajectory of blindness that he embraced in life continues beyond the grave. And all of this begs this question. And this is a scary question. Is there a Lazarus at my gate? Am I just as blind as this man? You see, the the terrifying thing about spiritual blindness is that, by definition, you don't recognize that you're spiritually blind. You know, Christ warned another prosperous, affluent church about blindness, spiritual blindness, before it happened in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 and following. This is the wor- These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, Poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may, be, that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. We need to cry out for the grace of God to open our blind eyes, to see, the, see our lives and the lives of those around us as God sees them. Is there a way to facilitate? Is there a means of grace that we could use? Is there something we can do along with prayer to begin to see the truth around us? I think that maybe some diagnostic questions would be helpful at this point. And these are challenging. But this parable is a challenging parable. To begin with, has it entered my mind that what is considered success, what is exalted in our entertainment-driven, pleasure-seeking consumer culture, is it within the scope of our imagination that this may be, in fact, an abomination in the sight of God? Am I pursuing that which God sees as an abomination? Here's a test to see if we have spiritual blindness. What do I think is more important than the worship of Almighty God? What am I willing to skip church for? Now, that sounds, oh, that's so, that's so petty. No, listen, this is where this is what we were created to do. We are created to be worshipers. This is what we're gonna be doing for eternity. What do I think is more important than the worship of Almighty God? Will it stand the scrutiny of the word of God now and the judgment of God in eternity? Does God have the greatest claim over my life? What I really believe uh, beyond, what I re- here's what I really know what I believe, beyond my own lip service and my own maybe spiritual blindness I know that what I truly believe is important is going to be revealed in how I spend my money and how I spend my time. That reveals what I truly think is important. Do I spend more care, time, and energy promoting my own material success, my well-being and entertainment, or do I spend it on my relationship with God? And finally, is there a Lazarus at my gate that I step over every single day? Now, it, when I hear a sermon like this, I, get, I feel overwhelmed. I feel overwhelmed, like, oh, my gosh, there's so much need in the world. I mean, you know, you just turn on the news. You just go to, the, go to a you know, CNN website or whatever, and you're just overwhelmed by the, by the chasm of, of need that's in the world. Um, but, brothers and sisters, I want you to remember the context of this parable. The, the rich man wasn't judged because of all the need in the world. He was judged because of the man that was at his gate, somebody he literally stepped over every day. So we don't have to worry about, well, I mean, if it's in our power to do something in, in the love of Christ, to reach out and bring relief to those who need relief— to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God beyond our doorstep, beyond our gate, then by all means we should do that. But all we're called to do for sure is this, is that God is going to put in your life a Lazarus. You don't have, nobody, he did, the rich man did not have to go looking for Lazarus. Somebody laid him at his doorstep. God is going to put Lazarus at your, your doorstep. And may God open our eyes when he does to see that person and to be the person who brings Christ's relief and blessing into their life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I invite you at this time.